Thank you, Bob. Tonight, we're going to discuss the first part of the book, Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Doris Kearns Goodwin is a very famous TV and literary personality, and you have no doubt seen her on the various news shows. She has also been a consultant in, with Ken Burns in his TV special on baseball. Doris Helen Kearns was born in 1943 in Brooklyn, New York. She graduated from Colby College, Maine, magnum cum laude, in 1964 with a BA in government. She was awarded a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship and attended Harvard University, obtaining her Ph.D. in government in 1968. In 1967, she went to Washington, D.C. during the Lyndon Johnson administration as a White House fellow. Lyndon Johnson offered her a position as his assistant and did not withdraw it, even though the New Republic printed her article, quote, How to Dump Lyndon Johnson, quote, providing a scenario on how to remove President Johnson because of his conduct of the war. He is supposed to have said, bring her down here, and if we can't turn her around in a year, nobody can. After the Johnson administration, she taught at Harvard for 10 years, teaching government, including a course on the presidency. During this time, she assisted Lyndon Johnson in drafting his memoirs and published the first of her six best-selling books entitled Lyndon Johnson and the American Dream in 1977. In 1975, she married Richard N. Goodwin, an advisor and speechwriter in both the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. They have three sons, one of whom is doing his second tour in Iraq. Her next two books, published in 87 and 95, turned out to be 21st century time bombs. They were her second bestseller, The Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys, published in 87, and the Pulitzer Prize-winning No Ordinary Times, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, The American Homefront During World War II, published in 95. Next, in 97, she published Wait Till Next Year, which was a baseball memoir, and in the year 2000, she wrote four years presidential campaign coverage. Now, we need to discuss the previously mentioned bombshell, that is the accusation of plagiarism surrounding the books The Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys and No Ordinary Times, published in 87 and 95. While there have been no such accusations made against tonight's book, Team of Rivals, the accusations of plagiarism almost destroyed her academic and journalistic career. The January 28, 2002 issue of the Weekly Standard magazine charged that authors Stephen Ambrose and Doris Goodwin had appropriated other authors' materials without attribution. It hit like a bombshell. The magazine claimed that Goodwin had appropriated, quote, phrases and sentences, unquote, without attribution from the books A Time to Remember by Rose Kennedy, The Lost Prince by Hank Serrell, and Kathleen Kennedy, Her Life and Times by Lynn McTaggart. Goodwin stated that 14 years before, the author Lynn McTaggart 
had contacted her regarding unattributed materials taken from her book. She found the claim correct and said she made necessary corrections. She did not say, however, that Simon & Schuster had made a settlement with Lynn McTaggart in an undisclosed amount. Also, author Peter Charles Hoffer of Past Imperfect claims Goodwin made no real corrections and only added 40 new footnotes to the existing 3,500 notes. Neither was author Lynn McTaggart happy, claiming in a March 24th uh, AP interview that Goodwin had lifted the, quote, heart and guts, unquote, of, out of her book. Goodwin described how she had spent 10 years researching and writing the Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys, and how she had, three years into the project, discovered 150 cartons of letters and other memorabilia in the attic of the Joe Kennedy Ionisport home, and how she had spent two years going through this material and some 300 other books taking copious notes on yellow legal pads, the method she preferred as she thought it helped her thinking process. However, years later, when she got back to this material to write the book, she had inadvertently confused quoted materials with her own notes. Fuel was added to the fire in August of 2002 when LA Times reporter Peter King showed how the Pulitzer Prize winning book No Ordinary Times contained material directly lifted from uh, Peter Lash's Eleanor and Franklin and Hugh Gregory's FDR's Splendid Deception. In her January Times article, Goodwin explained how she now uses a scanner to compile copies of materials she intends to quote and keeps in a separate folder from her own notes. She states that her son had shown her the, quote, footnote key on her word processor so she no longer loses footnotes. Academicians came to her defense saying it was the fault of her research assistants, but others, such as the author Peter Charles Hoffer in his book Past Imperfect, said that Goodwin was guilty of plagiarism even if there was no intent. By the way, both of our last two books, Jared Diamond's Collapse and Genghis Khan by Jack Weatherford had similar complaints from some academic critics, but there was never any charges of plagiarism, just a failure to follow up the footnotes with quotation marks. Goodwin had a number of invitations to be a commencement speaker withdrawn, resigned from a number of boards, and is no longer on the Jim Lear news program. Seven years later, Doris Goodwin seems to have recovered from this setback and is certainly a prominent figure both academically and on television. So let's hear from the author herself in part of an interview she had a number of years ago. Welcome to Books of Our Time, produced by the Massachusetts School of Law and seen nationwide. Today we shall discuss Team of Rivals, a book which describes Abraham Lincoln and his cabinet. 
The book's author is one of America's most widely read historians, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Miss Goodwin today is with me to discuss her book, and I am Lawrence R. Velvel, the Dean of the Massachusetts School of Law. Doris, thank you very much. Oh, you're you didn't very have welcome. to come. So, let's start uh, then, if, if I may, with what uh, one might call Lincolnography, the state of uh, knowledge and writing about Lincoln today. You know, it's interesting. Ida Tarbell, the historian at the turn of the 20th century, said the reason there's so many books on Lincoln is because he's so companionable, so people want to live with him. So I think there's a whole group of Lincoln scholars out there who are now each year producing new information about Lincoln, about his legal career, about his earlier days, about Anne Rutledge. And when I started, all I knew was that I wanted to live with him. And I wasn't sure I could come up with a new angle. But as I got into the lives of these characters who surrounded him in the cabinet, I realized, God, they're interesting. Yeah. And they had all kept diaries and wrote letters. So that did produce a wealth of information about Lincoln through them. Yeah, and about their families and about they themselves. How did you happen to get the idea to do it this way, to look at Lincoln through, in part, the eyes of the cabinet members. It took a while. I mean, I think the book itself took 10 years, and yes. it was into about the second year. At first, I thought I was going to do Abe and Mary Lincoln, like I had done Eleanor and Franklin. Yes. But then I realized that she couldn't carry the public side of the story. And uh -huh. the more I read about it, he was spending even more time with Seward and Stanton and Chase and Bates than with Mary, married to them because of the perils of the war and the emotions of it. So I started reading about them. And then when I realized how incredible were the treasure troves of materials that they all had in their families, that's when I knew this yeah, is the story yeah, I want to yeah. tell. When one reads your book, one gets the most distinct impression, and, and I'm looking for your view on this, that William Sewell was actually one of the great Americans of the 19th century. No question about that. You know, I think where I first began to feel his presence, his home still exists in Auburn, New York, and it's a private museum. And when you go through it, you see the impact that he had because his books are there, there's mementos on the wall, there's tributes to him from various characters. And he really was critical to Lincoln, not just as an advisor, but keeping England and France out of supporting the Confederacy, a very diplomatically difficult thing to do, which he did, and helping him with the emancipation, helping him with the first inaugural address. Yeah. I mean, he's everywhere during yeah. this period of time yeah. and I think yeah. deserves to be remembered as a great yeah. American. And he was, of course, along with Chase, uh, probably two, uh, one of the two with Chase, most uh, prominent anti-slavery politicians from, what would you say, 1850 to 1860? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he gives his maiden speech in the Senate um, in 1850, and right away, Seward has become a nationally celebrated character, yeah, yeah. and really was in many ways one of the founders of the Republican Party. Yeah. That's why everyone thought he would be the, yeah. rewarded by getting yeah. that nomination, yeah. but people yeah. thought he was too radical yeah. in 1860, yeah. and Lincoln was in the middle of the yeah. party. Uh, Chase, too was one of the founders of the Republican Party. In fact, Chase practically made a living going around founding political parties, right? <laughs> well, he went from one party to yeah. the other. Yeah. I mean, Chase is an interesting figure because on the one hand, he's brilliant, and on the one hand, he's also very dedicated to the anti-slavery cause, very honored in the abolitionist community. And yet, on the other, he was so relentlessly ambitious for the presidency yeah, that yeah. even when he becomes Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury, he cannot give it up. Yeah. I think, in part, it came from the sadness in his private life, having three young wives who died. I mean, imagine what it's like. You're married, your first wife dies at 22 yeah. in childbirth, yeah. the next one at 25 of TB, the yeah. third one in her yeah. 30s. Yeah. And all that he's left with is a daughter who he grooms yeah. to be the first lady of the land. Yeah. Yeah. And in that, in that sort of vacuum, his desire for the presidency becomes un unending in yeah. a certain sense. You know, uh, Doris, uh, a few days ago over lunch, somebody uh, 
Uh, I mentioned well, Kate Chase and what she had done, his daughter. And, and because life is so different today, people don't uh, die at early ages the way they, they died in droves at early ages because it wasn't until the revolution in medicine from starting around 1870 or 75 that this all changed. So somebody said to me as if this were unnatural, you know, was this really uh, often happened that a daughter? Sure it did. Oh no, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I mean, death cuts across all these families' lives in ways that it would be hard for us to imagine today. Yeah. I mean, look at Bates. Yeah. He has 17 children and then nine of them live. So that means yeah. he lost eight children. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing that we have to, that's one of the ways you have to get back in that time to yeah. understand yeah. that death is more intimate to them than it is to us. Oh, absolutely. A cholera, typhus. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, the common cold could be, well, anyway. Exactly. You mentioned several times, I'd never put the two together, that Lincoln spoke with great earnestness and people saw that in him. Yeah, when people would describe what kind of a speaker he was, evidently he had a thin, high-pitched voice, but amazingly, it could reach out. There's no microphones in those days, right? And there's 10,000 people gathered outside for one of these big speeches, and they can hear him at the far reaches of the crowd. But what everybody says is maybe he looked awkward when he started and his appearance was somewhat disheveled, but the yeah. minute he began to yeah. speak, he was speaking with such conviction, such emotional strength, that somehow he persuaded you that you believed that he believed what he was saying. Yeah. And that was yeah. his key. That was the yeah. key to his success. Yeah. He would not say word one until he had thoroughly studied a subject and felt that he had grasped it. Yeah, it's really true. He was afraid of any kind of spontaneous call for him to speak, even when he was president. Tell us a little bit about the, uh, the boyhood of Lincoln, because it's, it's, it's something that one... It just blows your mind, to tell you the truth. You know, it really does. I mean, even as a child, I remember reading these young biographies of Lincoln and feeling this emotional identity with this poor kid who is trying to find books and he can't find them and he's reading by candlelight. But it's all true. It's not yeah. a mythological yeah. understanding of yeah. him. I mean, growing up in that frontier area, which he later said, and he had no romanticization about it. He thought it was a very hard place to grow up. He wanted so much to go to school, and yet because his father needed him to work on the farm, or he actually loaned him out to pay yeah. off debts to other like farmers, a like a slave, yeah. he then was only able to attend school one year, he figured, yeah. of total schooling. Yeah. But the idea that he would then get a book by scouring the countryside for it and be so excited when he had the book in hand that he couldn't sleep or he couldn't eat, and reading at night, waking up in the morning to read, and eventually by reading Shakespeare and poetry and the best of the books. Maybe we read too much these days yeah, right, because he right. just read narrowly, but right. the best of literature, the Bible and Shakespeare in particular and poetry, those rhythms got implanted yeah. into his soul. Yeah. And then his mother dies when he's nine years old. And I think the hardest thing for and him his was... sister later. And his sister died in childbirth not too long after that. And then his first love, Anne Rutledge, died. And he didn't seem to be able to get the comfort that most people in that generation had that he would see them in the afterlife. I mean, stories are always told that when somebody was dying in that period, they'd actually talk at the deathbed. Well, you're going to see your sister or your brother there, and don't worry, we'll be there soon. But Lincoln's mother, when she died, simply said to him, Abraham, as she was dying, I'm going away from you now and I shall never return, not holding out that hope of heaven. Yeah. And I came away feeling that because of that, he was haunted by the idea that when you die, you become dust. So he developed this idea that if I can accomplish something worthy that will stand the test of time, then my life will live on in memory of other people. And boy, did he accomplish that. Yes, yes he did. Yes, he did. But Doris, you, you say there is some evidence, and uh, having had an experience, a sort of opposite experience uh, of the same genre, uh, I was really thunderstruck 
by the fact that you said there are some evidence his father destroyed his books? Yeah, there's some thought that the father was jealous of the fact that Lincoln was spending so much time in intellectual pursuits because he himself could hardly read or write and that it also was taking time away from his working on the farm. And then Lincoln would then, when he went out to work on the farm, start entertaining his little friends by telling them stories, climbing on a tree stump and recre recreating one of the books he'd read, thus taking those kids away from the work. So there's some people who've written that the father might have abused him at even, did destroy some of his books, and did have a fundamentally difficult relationship with yeah, his son. Yeah. And so much so that when the father lay dying much later, Lincoln did not go to visit him. And Lincoln yeah. forgave everybody everything, but this was the one person yeah, that something yeah. happened in that relationship that I, he couldn't I have had forgive. this sense, this is not part of your book, but obviously you know a lot about it. I've had the sense that, understandably to be sure, Lincoln was a little hard on his father because his father had an awfully tough life. I agree. I mean, it's the one thing that's almost inexplicable because he's so gentle in forgiving almost everybody else who's hurt him, and somehow he couldn't extend that generosity to the father. Yeah. So I, it's the one mystery that I still think needs to be solved about him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tell a little bit about his stepmother, and, and I'll tell you what really fascinates me. Well, you, you, go ahead, uh, you go ahead and tell about it. Well, he was very lucky. What happened is, after his mother died, his father left Abe and his sister Sarah, who was only 12, for months while he went back to Kentucky to bring yeah. back a second wife. Uh, he was wife. only nine. Lincoln was only He's nine. only nine years yeah. old, and the sister is trying to take care of him. And when they came back with the new stepmother, Sarah, she said that they looked like wild animals, that yeah. they hadn't yeah. been fed right, they hadn't eaten right, they hadn't been clothed correctly. But she ended up loving Abraham, yeah. and she really, I think was able to build a path for him with his father because she thought it was important for him to read. She never never made him do chores when she thought he could be broadening himself through reading. And he loved her. And yeah. I think she, 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 under, she said what little mind she had and his mind somehow ran on the same channels. Yeah. Yeah. So that became a very yeah. important relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> she actually lived to see this ragged urchin become right. a, the greatest man in the, in the <laughs> Exactly, history. and he went to see her right before yeah. he went to Washington, yeah. and that was a pretty emotional moment oh, for the yeah. two of them, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Like his farewell speech at Springfield, oh. I know not whether I shall ever, etc. Incredible, right? I mean, yeah. it's like he saw the future a lot. You had this yeah. feeling, he wasn't a morbid person, but he did seem to think at various points that this might not be a long life for him, yeah. and yet he still forged yeah. on. Yeah. There are certain aspects of Lincoln's persona, Doris, that you bring out that simply are not generally brought out. You know, for bit. me, I think the greatest and most pleasant surprise was to find out about his amiability. I think we've been so programmed to see him as the great emancipator and that monument in that incredible, beautiful statue in, in Washington. And all the pictures make him seem so stiff. And, and we do know that he was melancholy and he had a sadness about him. But when you read what other people said about him when they were in his presence, he would light up a room the minute he walked in the room. He was the one when they were on the legal circuit like together. Clinton, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And when he was on the legal circuit together with the other lawyers and the judges and the bailiffs, everybody, when they knew Lincoln was in town, in the tavern, would come from miles around. He would entertain them with stories for four or five hours. Yeah. And yeah. so suddenly when I saw that picture and they said he would laugh harder than everybody else and his whole face would light up, I realized that we were just seeing one picture of him because of still photography. If we had ever had moving pictures then, we'd have a whole different emotional feeling for this man because he came to life when he started talking. Yeah, and he had a tremendous uh, 
sensitivity and, and empathy for people. I think that's right. No, in fact, you know what's really interesting? The qualities that I came to believe were the source of his political genius, his empathy, his sensitivity, his compassion, and his understanding of relationships, those are qualities that we normally associate with women. Yes. And yet he also had the kind of chutzpah to put himself forward in political yeah. life, which sometimes women haven't seemed to have over the ages. You know, that sense of, here I am, I'm going to run for president, even though nobody knows who I am. <laughs> so yes. he combined both those qualities. Doris, you said that uh, here was this man who had a preternatural, even feminine sensitivity, and yet who put himself forward. Uh, and as part of putting himself forward, you, you make the point that as distinct from his rivals in the cabinet, this man always had to do everything for himself from obtaining an education to running his own campaigns. Can you elaborate a little on that? Right. I think that's one of the things that in the end helped him very much. But at the time, it made things much more difficult for him. For example, Seward in New York had the boss of New York, Thurlow Weed, as his best friend, who would run his campaigns, who would figure out who the delegates were, who would bribe whatever he needed to do to get them yeah. to go for Seward. Yeah. And Seward could just sit back and wait until he won and then give a speech. Yeah. Um, Chase had people working for him. Bates did too. But Lincoln had to do every step yeah. of the political yeah. process yeah. of his own. Yeah. But it meant that he was more absorbed in understanding the people because of yeah. that. This became a really big deal later. I, I, I think that one might compare it in a way, uh, the Seward-Weed relationship. It was in some ways like uh, the Jackie-Bobby relationship or uh, the Bill and Hillary relationship. Absolutely. I mean, it meant that Seward had a companion throughout his entire political life who was his mentor, who would be able to weave through difficult paths for him, who could push off other candidates. No, there's no question about it. Or yeah. maybe like Bush and Karl Rove in a Bush certain sense Karl today. Rove. Uh, and who told him what to say and what not to say and when to say it and when not to say it. And actually, when Seward got into trouble is when he didn't consult or didn't listen to Weed. That's right. I mean, yeah. Weed understood that Seward had instinctively radical tendencies during the 1850s. And at a certain point when Seward was making a speech where he called on the fact that there was a higher law than the Constitution that dedicated us to anti-slavery, yeah. Weed yeah. knew immediately, yeah. uh-oh, yeah. you shouldn't have said this. Yeah. And yeah. then he, he apologized, but it was too late. It yeah. got labeled to him. Yeah, yeah. Once, once it gets out there, you cannot take it <coughs> That's back. That's right. He also used another phrase that did the same thing, the irrepressible conflict. Exactly. I mean, yeah. he was right that the, that the slavery issue was an irrepressible conflict that would eventually lead to war. But in the 1850s, people didn't want to believe that. They still no. wanted to believe there was some compromise available. Now, when Lincoln started uh, in politics, one of the early things he did is he uh, got, got himself elected to, first to the state legislature, which became uh, disastrous because of the Depression of 1837. Right. And then he got himself elected to Congress on sort of a rotating basis with a couple of other guys. And uh, the way you put, put the matter is something like this. Lincoln said to us, well, you want me to make a splash here, so I'm going to make a splash. I'm going to uh, say some bad things about the way we got into this war with Mexico. And boy, that learned him. Oh, is that <laughs> talk, That learned him, that. exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, it was his maiden speech in the Congress, and the Mexican-American War, he believed, had been started by President Polk really just to gain territory for the United States, and particularly to gain slavery territory for the United States. And so he questioned the president, um, why did you start the war in this place? And he said, if we allow in Congress a president to have the authority to start a war whenever he says there's a war, then the whole constitutional system is upended. But the war was popular. 
people loved the fact that our territory had expanded, so he was considered a Benedict Arnold for questioning the war. Even he finally had to acknowledge, well, I did vote for supplies of the soldiers. It sounded so familiar to the arguments yeah, of these we last heard this years. recently. Yeah. Exactly, but it meant that he really didn't have a chance to run for Congress again after that, and it looked for a while yeah. Yeah. like his political career was yeah. over. Give us one minute on Chase, his boyhood, his education, well, Chase came from a distinguished family in New England. He yes. had uncles who were senators. He had another uncle who was the Episcopal Bishop of Ohio. But his father died when he was young, and his mother needed to have him taken care of, so she sent him to this uncle in Ohio who was, even though a brilliant man, very tough on young Chase and, and almost like a martinet with him. So Chase developed, I think, early on some of that quality of repression and severity and no joy in life that he brought with him. But ambition. The guy wanted him to be ambitious and he became so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it sounds very Puritanish. Very much so. I mean, he, he, he was very religious and he didn't ever drink much. He never smoked. He thought novels were sinful. He thought theater was a waste of time. Right. He would right. spend his evenings practicing jokes that he could never deliver with ease <laughs> or, or studying a foreign language. Yeah, right. He would not right. have been the most fun guy to yeah. be around. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want to have a beer with Sam. No, I don't think so. And he, he hated his name, yeah. Sam and P. Chase. Yeah, he wanted to change it at one point. Exactly. Tell me, uh, t tell us about, because this is. How many people in America know that Lincoln almost was elected as senator in 1855? The term would have begun in 1856. Right. Tell what happened. It's an amazing story and one with most important long-term consequences. No, absolutely. I mean, what happened is that he had been instrumental in creating the, um, the beginnings of the Republican Party in Illinois, and it was made up of former Whigs and former Democrats. And everybody thought he would be the one because he had created this thing to be given the senatorial nomination, which, of course, took place in the state legislature at that time. And he had, like, 47 votes for him. And this other candidate, Trumbull, had five votes for him. Trumbull had been a former Democrat. And, but his five votes would not go over to Lincoln. And Lincoln felt if he didn't somehow do something, the third candidate, who was more pro-slavery, would win the nomination. So he voluntarily gave his 47 votes to Trumbull's five votes to give Trumbull the Senate ship. Mary Lincoln never would speak to Mrs. Trumbull again, but Lincoln went that night to the celebration, and eventually Trumbull becomes Lincoln's great supporter. I mean, that's why it all comes around yeah. when you do and it. Trumbull and Trumbull and the fellow who was supporting one of the five votes, a fellow named Judd, right. were two of the guys at the Republican convention, were they not, in 1860? Exactly. That, got, that put Lincoln across. That's right. So it yeah. just shows if you can do like Lincoln, not hold grudges, when politics is all about human relationships, yeah. in the long run it's going to come back to yeah. your benefit, but it takes an extraordinary person oh, to do my. that. Yeah, we have to wrap it up. Be with us again next time for the next show uh, in Books of Our Times. I'd like to thank Bob Acosta and Rick Harmon for their assistance this evening. Let's start out talking about the four rivals. Let's start, in fact, with the governor of Ohio, Samuel P. Chase, the one rival who Lincoln never brought around. What were his redeeming points and his bad points? What were his chances ever of becoming president? 